All right, let's have a word of prayer and we'll get rolling here this morning. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us today. Thank you, Lord God, for letting us be here in church. God, thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be in a country, God, that still has the liberty and the freedom left, God, to do those things. And Lord, we pray, God, that you would prolong liberty, God, in this country, God, for for that sake. And Lord, we pray, God, as we're gathered here this morning, Lord, a lot of folks come in, God, from different places, Lord, different things going on in their lives. Lord, I pray that you'd help them, God, to, uh, Lord, put those distractions away for just a little while, God. Lord, as we open the Word of God, Lord, pray that you'd, Lord, pray that the Holy Spirit would take those, these things, Lord, that we, we're looking at, God, and help us, Lord, to apply them to ourselves. God, help us to understand, God, how to be better sons, God, how to be better children of God, Lord, how to be led by the Spirit, God. Lord, give us an understanding, Lord, of what these things translate to. And we'll thank you for it. We thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ, dying for our sins. God, Lord, through which all of this is possible, Lord. We thank you for that, Lord. Lord, we're looking for a good day in your house, Lord. And we we trust, Lord, that you'll do something among us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Romans chapter 8. Uh, let's look right here in verse 12. The Bible said, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to live to the flesh, but uh, not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may, also, we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, we've been dealing with this thing about sonship and really try, I've, I've tried to approach it more along the lines of a doctrinal statement as opposed to something devotional. And there is a very significant devotional uh, side to it. And so I don't want to slight that, but I want to just try and impress upon your hearts and minds the fact that, which I think this is understood by all of you, and maybe that's a bad idea to assume this, but I think it's understood that you, uh, you realize the day that you trusted Christ, you became a son of God. And I know there's ladies in here, so we'll say a child of God, so forth and so on. But the biblical term for it is you become a son of God. And what that translates, that, that's a doctrinal statement. However you feel this morning, uh, you know, in your body or what you may have dealt with this past week, whether you've had a good week as far as submitting your life to the Lord or whether you've been an absolute failure. And that kind of stuff happens. And work on it is all I can tell you. But regardless of that, if you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you trusted the Son of God, God's only begotten Son, John three sixteen then you have become a son of God. That is a doctrinal statement. And that is really what you're looking at. And I've said that already, but just to review a little bit, that's what we're dealing with in Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the, sons of, uh, led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. 
But the context in which it's written is really dealing with a practical issue. We're not going to do my best not to reteach through this, but it's a practical issue. And the interesting thing about Romans chapter 8 is that it goes from a practical issue into this doctrinal statement of, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That is a statement of identity. We're talking about sons of God. Well, who are they? Who, who are these sons of God? Well, it's these people that are led by the Spirit of God. I think you can understand that. And so last week, what we dealt with was we went through, I believe it was last week, I took you to Ephesians chapter 2, and dealt with the fact that before you trusted Christ as your Savior, what you're led by is not the Spirit of God, it's the lust of your flesh. It's the course of this world. Uh, let me just go ahead and turn over there. Ephesians chapter 2, he says, verse 2, Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So you're still being led by something before you got saved. It's, it's amazing to me that God designed man to respond to leadership. He just, he, he, made, he made men that way. Uh, even Adam in the garden, God put Adam in the garden and then gave him some instructions. He didn't just put him in the garden and say, see you later. So it's a very unnatural. It, it, it's not that it's a I don't, I don't know how to, let me try to explain what I'm, what I'm trying to say. It's not just that it's a lost mentality. It's not a reprobate mentality to not respond to leadership. It's unnatural. You know, there's, there's things that are unnatural in the Bible. For a man to look at a man and say, ooh, he's good looking, that is unnatural. You understand that? That's Romans 1. That's not all that's in Romans 1, but that's one of the things that's in Romans 1. Uh, first Corinthians, I forget what chapter it is, but the Bible says, doth not nature teach you that it's a shame for a man to have long hair? A whole lot less amens. I don't know why. I don't think anybody in here has got long hair that's a fella. Let me take a look around. Uh, Miss Jessie's in the back. She'll give you a haircut if you want. But that's what the Bible says. Those things are unnatural. There's some things that are unnatural. Well, it's unnatural for a man not to respond to leadership. God made a man when he made you. You know, we could preach a whole sermon, which I'm kind of getting a little sidetracked here, but this is good to say. If it's true, it's good to say. It's unnatural for a man to be lazy. I didn't say that it didn't come easy. <laughs> that comes very easy. That's something that men love to do. People, when I say men, I mean people. People love to do that. It comes natural in that sense, but God, God didn't make a man to be that way. Well, the same way, God didn't make a man to just be his own thing, to be, a, to be an island unto himself. You're not made that way. And so before you trust Christ as your Savior, you're following somebody's leadership. And Ephesians chapter 2 tells you who that is. It's, it, it may be your leadership. It's the lust of your flesh. It may be the desires of the flesh and of your mind, but that together makes up the course of this world. 
So you're, you're, follow, you're walking on a path that's already been carved out for you. You're not your own individual. You're following somebody. So that, that's how those things. Well, when you trust Christ as your Savior, now you respond to a new set. Uh, you, you respond to a new uh, thing of leadership. I gave you the illustration. I made the statement. I think it was last Sunday about being under new management. You go by a restaurant and it's got a big sign hanging out there saying under new management. Well, usually that's a good sign, especially when you've ran by a restaurant or maybe went inside and you see cockroaches and mice everywhere. And then you see this sign and it says under new management. Hey, nice. Maybe we'll actually get a nice restaurant here in Folkestone or in Hilliard or wherever you're at. Well, that's what happened to you when you got saved. Oh, I was talking to a fellow, I think this past week, I I get my days mixed up and he made the statement to me, which I I don't completely agree with, but I I do see where he was coming from and I do agree with him. Uh, He made the statement, he said, I don't believe in this stuff of salvation. And I don't remember exactly how I say it, but I'm going to say it the best way I remember. I don't, I don't agree or believe in this stuff of salvation being a fire, just being a fire escape from hell. And in the context in which he said it, I understood fully what he was talking about. And in the context in which he was talking about, I understand and agree with him. Now, I do believe, and let me just say as an absolute statement, I do believe that salvation is a fire escape from hell. I, I do believe that. I got saved because I was scared. That, that's what motivated me. The Bible said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I believe, I, I, I suspect at least, and it's an educated suspicion. It is further than a suspicion. I really believe, I, I just say, that a lot of people, the reason that their conversion experience is so shallow is because they weren't ever scared of anything. They say they trusted Christ And I don't doubt that they had some kind of experience, but I'm not so sure it was a biblical experience because they were not afraid of this God who really does exist. I say this God, speaking of a particular one, the God, they wasn't afraid of the God that the Bible said in the gospels, he's got power to destroy both body and soul in hell. And that man responds to a fear factor. He responds to fear. However, that is not all that salvation is. Salvation goes beyond just delivering your soul from hell. And now the Lord wants to deliver your life from destruction. And it's going to come from the same place. Your your deliverance from hell uh, came from Jesus Christ dying on Calvary for your sins. The wages of sin is death. You understand that thing. Well, sin still works death in your day-to-day life, and the Lord wants to deliver you from that death, from that destruction, from that damnation, and, it, and that salvation in that sense is going to come from the same place. It's going to come from a dying Savior at Calvary who bore your sins on his shoulders and carried them off to hell and was buried, rose again the third day, And there are some things obviously tied to that that translates to the salvation of your life. It translates to the salvation of your life. And the thing that is tied to that is now you have the ability, you're saved, it's a a true fact, but let me put it this way, let me term it this way. You have the ability to receive the leadership of the Holy Ghost. Well, now what this does is this makes an entirely new life possible. 
Think about it this way. And if you're saved, I believe you'll understand what I'm talking about. If you're not saved, you may have some trouble understanding what I'm talking about. But if you're saved, uh, you remember what it was like to be lost. You remember what it was like. Uh, you're going down the road of life and you're just kind of doing whatever you want to do. Now, before you got saved, it may, it's different for different folks as far as where they're at in their mindset and how God brings them to the place of realizing, hey, I'm lost and I need to be saved. Some folks, it hits them like a ton of bricks all at once. And, oh, my soul, I, I got I to gotta get saved now. And listen, let me, just, let me just say this. If you're not saved, you do have to get saved now. You say, well, I'll get saved next week. No, now. Now, right now, we'll stop and we'll have an invitation and you can come down and get saved right now. You can sit right there in your seat as I'm teaching and you can get saved. But now's the time to get saved because the Bible says, I believe it's in 2 Corinthians, behold, now is the accepted time. Today, today, today is the day of salvation. He said in the book of Hebrews, today, if you'll hear his voice and harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. Them Israelites turned God away one too many times and God said, okay, wander around out in the wilderness until you die off and I'll bring your kids into the place that I promised y'all. God promised you a wonderful place. God promised you, a, and I'm not talking necessarily about the third heaven. I'm not necessarily talking about heaven, although that is a wonderful place. But God promised you a place of reconciliation with God through his son, Jesus Christ. There'll come a time where you turn that stuff away too much, too, too, too long. And God may, I'm not saying he will, but it's very possible. He has done it before, but God may just leave you to your own devices and let you just wander around in the wilderness of your own life. You say, you're trying to motivate me by fear. Well, you're motivated by fear in a lot of other ways in your life. That's why you don't put your hand on the stove. Duh. You're afraid of getting burnt. That's why you don't pick up rattlesnakes. And if you do, you're out of your mind. Amen. Some of y'all like to pick up non-poisonous snakes. I, I think you're crazy for that too. <laughs> but anyways, uh, that's not the subject this morning. Uh, but see, it's a motivation. It's a motivation by fear. Well, before you get saved, you may have come to, to the place to where you realize, hey, I got to get saved and I got to get saved right now. Some folks come to the place of realizing they need to be saved by saying, boy, something ain't right in my life. And so they begin to try to change their life. They begin to, uh, we, I think I preached that to you last Sunday night. Here's a man, Cornelius. He begins, he doesn't begin. The, the scripture just gives the account of here's a man who's just doing the right thing. It doesn't save him. God pays attention to it and therefore sends him a gospel witness. It doesn't save him. It doesn't put him on the road to heaven. Well, there's a lot of folks like that. They live like a reprobate and just live, do whatever they want to do. And then they begin to see the consequences of that life. And they say, man, something ain't right about this way that I'm living. So they begin to try to make amends. They begin to try to change their life. Well, the problem with that, the problem with doing that is, and it's not bad, but there's a problem with it. There's a shortcoming. And the shortcoming is who's leading you to do what needs to be done that's right. You're really what you're doing, even in that regard, you're kind of wandering around in the darkness because there is no Holy Spirit that's really living on the inside that as you're doing things, he's reproving or he's approving. So really what you have to operate on is... 
everything external. You come into a church and hear a preacher say, hey, you're not supposed to commit adultery, which is true. That's God's law. You're not supposed to steal. That's true. That's God's law. But see, all of what you have is external. I'm not saying that that's bad and that that should be ignored. But what I'm saying is that at best, at the best, as a lost man, what you have is it's external. And then you come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and man, something changes drastically. Now what is on the outside is now in your heart. Now it's not just a preacher. And I pause there because in my mind I say, or is it? it it's not just a preacher that's reproving you. At least it shouldn't be. Now there should be some reproof on the inside. Now there should be something on the inside that when you go to do what the preacher was hollering about before you got saved, now there should not only be the preacher hollering about it, but there should be something in your heart saying, what you doing that for? You know that ain't right. You, you know what that, what that feels like if you're saved. You know, you know what that's all about. There's something, there's an uneasiness. There is a, man, it's, you know it's there, though. I don't know how to put it into words, but boy, it is, your peace is gone. And if you, I'll, I'll even go so far as to say this, if you're not well established in doctrine, if you're not well established in the truth of the Scripture, you may look at that peace, th that absence of peace, and take that as maybe I'm not saved anymore because it's stark. It is, it is a stark contrast from there's fellowship with God, you trust Christ as your Savior, something moves on the inside. You have this peace, you have this joy, and somebody says, yeah, that's because the Holy Ghost moved into your heart. And he did. He, he moved on the inside. He did. He did. And then you do something to grieve him. And that peace disappears and that joy disappears. And so you reason, well, I must not be saved. Well, that's, that's not necessarily true. That, that's not true. You, once saved, always saved. I say that because that's a, that's a cliche that accurately des describes the arrangement in the, the dispensation in the, of the church. But, boy, if you're not well grounded, you, it'll lead you to believe. Man, something, something has really messed me up. Uh, man, what, what's this all about? Well, what you've done, what, what you've done is you, you have this leadership that's being exerted. Before you got saved, you got the leadership by the world. You, now you trusted Christ. Now you have this leadership being given by the Holy Ghost. Well, when you turn that away, when you rebel against that leadership, it's like a chain that's broken. Doesn't send you to hell, but it's like a chain that's broken. If you could take, if I could use the illustration of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, he starts out, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Well, that's on, that is the opening of Romans 8, obviously, but that's on the tail end of Romans 7. Romans 7 is Paul talking about this contradiction, if you will, that he has in his own flesh, in his own body. Look at verse 25. Well, verse 24, he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Well, what's that all talking about? Well, you go up several verses before that, and he's talking about the things that he hates 
Those are the things that he does and the things that he loves, the things that he knows is right. Those are the things that he doesn't do. And so he comes to the place of saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I, I'm in a mess. I, I'm, I am. My, my life is just, it's a mess. Well, that's not where he stops. That is not where he stops. That's where a lot of people stop, though. That's where a lot of Christians stop. They stop right there saying, I'm just a mess. And that, I, I believe that's what causes a lot of folks to get out of church. They hear these standards that are preaching by, preached by a preacher, and they're right standards. They're not gonna, in, a, in a right church, they're not going to stop being preached. They have to be preached. You have to be reminded of those things. But you know you. You live with you. You know the things that you think, and you know the things that come out of your mouth to your family, to your wife, to your husband. Uh, you know those things, and you sit there and say, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And that's where you stop, and you say, Well, if this is all there is to Christianity, what's the use? But that's not where it stops. Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Well, if you're saved, you're in Christ. He'll explain that a little later in Romans 8. But he says to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The thing is, is when you got saved in an absolute doctrinal sense, here's this leadership now available to you. It's the leadership of the Holy Spirit. But you have to follow that. Okay, well, turn that away. Turn that away, and what it does is it puts you right back in Romans chapter 7. What's with all these Christians walking around? I was talking to Heidi about it the other day, and I wasn't talking about necessarily Christians eliminating it to just say folks, but people, man. You know, years ago, I remember as I don't remember as a child ever hearing about people being depressed as much as they are now. I, I, I don't ever remember that. And there's a lot of reasons that I could go on about that. But I think one of the things, I don't know how big of it this is, is that a lot of folks are just not responding to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, they're sitting in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am. What you don't realize, listen, let me just put it this way. What you don't realize is that you have to come to Romans 7 before you can get to Romans 8. You know why some of you won't respond to the leadership of the Holy Ghost? I'm talking to you Christians. You know why you won't respond to the leadership of the Holy Ghost? You don't believe you're wretched. And what makes you mad is when a preacher stands up and says, you're wretched. Okay, well, I got news for you. Romans 8 is off limits for you. Revelation chapter 3 describes the attitude of the Laodicean church. You're rich, increased with goods, have need of nothing, and you don't know that you're miserable. You ever met somebody that was miserable and didn't know it? You ever been miserable and didn't know it? You know what will get you in that condition? Have a lot of money in your pocket, or more money than maybe you've ever had. It's a little bit relative, so I'll just put it to you like that. Have more money in your pocket than you've ever had before, and you've got all this liberty to buy all these things that you think you want. Well, go out and buy them. 
And you still, how come, how come, I'm, how come I'm not as happy as I thought I'd be? Because you're miserable. You're miserable and you didn't know it. I'm not preaching necessarily against things, although if you pucker up and look like you're sucking on lemons, I will preach against it. <laughs> uh, but, hey, you have as much as you want, but you've got to realize that's not where your happiness comes from. He says you, you're miserable. You're wretched. You're wretched. You're wretched. Well, I'm just not going to believe that about myself. Okay, then you're probably not going to respond to the leadership of the Holy Ghost. Let me ask you something. Why did you get saved? You say, well, I got saved because I was afraid of hell. You know what, what, what put you on the road to hell? It was your nature. It's who you are. You're a sinner. And I guarantee you, I could say this almost 100% of a fact, the thing that God used to show you that you were a sinner was not that he just showed you you was just bad in a generic sense. God used some particular sin and pointed at that. He put that, his finger on that thing and said, look at that. And you said, and you saw that up next to the law of God. I, somehow you saw that up next to the law of God and God used that to show you my soul. In Romans chapter 7, you know what Paul says? He says, I didn't know lust until the law said thou shalt not covet. What Paul did is he gave you, he gave you a specific thing that God put his finger on in Paul and said, you're a sinner. I said, thou shalt not covet. Look at all that lust in your heart. Oh, he said, when I saw that, he said, sin revived and I died. It's condemnation. Well, what happens now is that you get People, I hesitate to say whether they're saved or lost because I'm not sure anymore. But you get people in a church and a preacher stands up and tries to dish out all this encouragement, which is not bad, although the Bible never tells a preacher to encourage you. The, I think the word encouragement only shows up twice in your Bible, and one of them is a man who's encouraging himself. It's David. And then there's another individual, and it's not even names, it's... Uh, the carpenter encouraging the goldsmith, I think. That's in one of the major prophets. That's the only place where encouragement... But what you have is you have these preachers standing up and they're dishing out all this encouragement when really what you've got, what you have to come to terms with is that you're wretched. Well, listen, once you get to that place, now you're getting into a place to where you're willing to receive leadership from somebody else. Hey, I'm in a mess. Well, the next logical thing after that is, tell me how to get out of this. Well, let's remove the fact that you're wretched. Then the question is never going to come into your mind, how do I get out of this? Because what do you need to get out of it for? I think I told you that, that illustration uh, last Sunday school of this fella going to his lost family. And, you know, they drinking. And he walks in there and, you know, they all put their beer under the table because they know he's a Christian. And he walks in there and grabs that beer and puts it on the table and tells them, drink up. Hey, you're just doing what comes naturally. You're lost. Well, what he did is he really served to show them that there's no need for them to be saved. There's no need for you to be saved if that's the case. Because all they're doing now is they're looking at this beer and saying, well, if I get saved, I have to give this up. 
He had to give it up because he got saved. But the truth is, is that you're supposed to give it up one way or another. Whether you're saved or lost, the law of God says X. That's true whether you're saved or lost. God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. God says, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That's, that applies to men, not just saved people. It applies to men. It applies to people. But you don't have the power to do that until you get saved. It doesn't change God's expectations. God still has that expectation. God, because it's right, God is interested in righteousness. Amen. Yes, sir. See, that's underemphasized. But what I'm trying to say is until you get to the place to where you see Romans 7, I'm wretched, you're not getting into Romans 8. You can't. The door's closed. The door's closed. I feel a little led to just hang out here a little bit this morning. Some of you folks, you, you assume, you assume that you know what a preacher should preach. You assume that you know what a preacher should preach. You, you, you get upset with a preacher when he stands up service after service after service after service after service and says, hey, you're doing this wrong. Hey, you're not doing this right. Hey, you should improve this. Hey, you should improve that. Hey, you should do this. Hey, you should do that. And you get upset with a preacher about that stuff, but that is the diagnosis and you're living in a society to where there is a constant influx of influence, not just from psychology, not just from public schools. Now it's in churches that wear the label Independent Baptist Church and they say, hey, you're so wonderful. Hey, you're such a wonderful guy. No, no, you're not. I am not a wonderful guy. And that's where the solution is going to be found. That is the threshold through which the, the solution is going to be found. Yes, sir. Amen. Amen. All right. So he says here, he says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So now there's leadership that is available. There's leadership that's available for you. Uh, it's a life of following God. That's what this Christian life is all about. Before it's a life, before you're saved, it's a life of following the lust and desires of your mind. And before you're not following God at all, you're following you. And that really makes you your own God. When you get saved, Romans chapter 12, Paul goes through the book of Romans and goes Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11. And really what Paul's dealing with is doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. He, Paul takes doctrine and, and uh, practice and mixes them together because you can't separate your doctrine from practice. But the overall tone is doctrine. But when you hit Romans chapter 12... I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect what? Well, now that you're saved, what you're supposed to be chasing after is God's will. I got saved, and now I'm not going to hell. Now what? Okay, God's will. You say, well, what is that? Well, you have a whole book that you'll have to read for the rest of your life, and the more you read it, the more God is going to show you what his nature is, what his principles are. God's principles do not change. 
The way that he deals with men changes from dispensation to dispensation because of the history of man. Okay, God doesn't, God did not deal with Noah the same way that he deals with the church. Do you understand that concept? That's what I mean when God changes the way that he deals with men. But his principles don't change. The holy God that hated the things that he hated in Noah's day is the holy God that you're dealing with today that still hates the same things. Be careful about this idea of we're under law or they were under law and now we're under grace. And so we draw a stark line. And so what they were dealing with was hard things and now we're dealing with a God of love. Hey, they were dealing with a God of love. They were dealing with a God of grace. Hey, the penalty for committing adultery in the Old Testament was death. Take the adulterer and the adulteress, take them out, stone them, rock their brains out. David lived. How do you account for that? The grace of God. The grace of God is in the law. That's where it's at. The Lord told the Pharisees, he said, the problem that you guys have is that you've you, you're straining at all these small things, but you for, you've forsaken the weightier things. And he named them. He said things like faith. He, uh, he said mercy. He said you've, you've forsaken these big things in the law. Mercy's in the law. That's what Jesus said. So you better be careful about that. All this old hard stuff back in the law and then we have a God of grace in the New Testament. He hasn't changed. It's the same God. It's the, it's the same God. It's the same God. Well, you've got this. You've got leadership. You've got leadership in, in the New Testament. All right, look in 2 Peter chapter 3, or 2 Peter chapter 2, rather. 2 Peter chapter 2. Let's take a look here. St. Peter chapter 2, and I was going to read the whole chapter, but we're not going to do that this morning. But read, look at verse 1. Let me just kind of give you the context of what he's talking about. He said, 2 Peter 2, 1, he said, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily, that's privately, shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways. He said, many shall follow them. You know what that is? That's popularity. Let me give you something, a, a rule of thumb that a preacher gave me when I was probably these fellows' age. And it has helped me so much in my Christian life. He said, if something is popular, it's probably wrong. If everybody likes it, it's probably not right. Amen. Amen. That brings me joy to say things like that. You say, why? Because it saved me from a lot of trouble. Uh, I grew up in, right here in Folkestone. Uh, well, kind of out on 3R Fish Camp is really where I grew up. But uh, I lived at home. I was homeschooled. My mama raised me and my brother, and about the only exposure that we had to people was in this church. My dad pastored this church for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years, and about the only exposure to people that we had was right here in this church. But I would hear 
Listen to me. I, this, this doesn't bring me any joy. I'm just telling you the way it is. I would hear the names as a young'un. I'd hear the names of people, young folks that was my age that lived in this town. And I would hear young people rave about how popular they were. The, these kids, you know, whatever. For whatever reason, they were so popular. And now, Brother Clan, I'm hearing their names, and I'm not hearing anything good about them. I'm hearing tragic things about them. You better be careful about things that are popular. You say, why? Because it lies with the course of this world. Hey, if a bunch of Baptists get on board with something and say, oh, yeah, this is great. This is awesome. I am automatically suspicious. If a bunch of churches get somewhere and say, hey, this is the latest and greatest. They don't even have to say that. If I see about six churches in this area say, hey, this is what we're doing. I automatically look at it and say, hmm, I don't have to know anything about it. If it's a singing group, if it's a preacher, I automatically look at it and say, hmm, I got my guard up. You say, why? Because many shall follow their pernicious ways. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Straight is the gate. It's narrow. Narrow is the way that leads to life everlasting. That's just the way it's been. That's the way it's been ever since Adam fell in the garden. Enoch shows up in the book of Jude. And you know what he's preaching? He's preaching the Lord's coming. Enoch, back in Genesis, he's preaching the Lord's coming with 10,000 of his saints to kill all these ungodly people that are doing all these ungodly deeds in their ungodly ways. <laughs> he sounds like he's a Baptist. Uh, but anyways, verse 2, Many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. So there you got the context text. That's the basic idea of what he's going to deal with throughout the rest of the chapter. Well, he looks through here at verse 17. He said, these are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, that's somebody that's saying something, but they're not saying anything at all. There's no substance. Hey, when you talk, there should be something to what you're saying. That's why it's a bad idea to constantly use profanity in your vocabulary. You know what I, I know? I've worked around some folks that do nothing except cuss all day out at the prison. I, that's, that, that's what they do. And the ladies, the women, you can't call them ladies, the females were just as bad as the fellas were. And you know what you know about those folks? They're dumber than a barrel of hammers. So, Brother Nathan, that's pretty tough. I intend to be pretty tough because what that's all about is that's people that don't have a vocabulary that's very broad, so the only thing they can think of is something profane to say. Pull out a dictionary and read. Improve yourself. Everything is not damned. It's, it, it's not it, damned means destruction, destroyed, under a curse. Everything's not that way. So don't say that. Anyways, I know all you Baptists use cuss words all the time, so I had to say that. But anyways, to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever, for when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness. Wantonness is something out of the way. It doesn't stick with the prescribed bounds, the prescribed lines. 
He said, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. Now watch what he says. He says, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. So these false prophets, these false teachers, he's warning you about, he said, they're going to come in and they're going to promise you liberty. But he said, what happens is they themselves, while they're telling you, hey, there's liberty to be had, what they're not telling you is that they themselves are bound. They themselves are servants of corruption. Look at what he says. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. So to apply that to what's going on now, what you have is you have preachers saying, well, you know, all these legalists are running around and they're preaching all these rules. Well, God came to give us liberty. Well, yes, he did. Yes, he did. But what he came to give us liberty from is the lust of your flesh. Ephesians 2, verse 2 and 3. What the Lord came to deliver you from was not from good order. Let me use the, the same old illustration that we use all the time, gravity. You know what gravity is? That's a law. That's legalism. If you want to apply order, if you want to identify order and law as legalism, then there's legalism. It's like that somebody said one time, I don't mind falling. It's just the sudden stop at the end that bothers me. <laughs> well, what, what gravity does is it, it creates order in this world. Well, that's not legalism. That is, that is something that creates order. Well, when the Lord saved you, what he did is he brought order to your life. And when a preacher stands up and preaches rules, when a preacher stands up, let me put it like this, he preaches instruction, correction, reproof, rebuke, exhortation, encouragement. Hey, nothing wrong with a preacher preaching encouragement. Well, when he does those things, what he's doing is he's delivering. When you open your Bible and you read it, what you're seeing is you're seeing God's order, the way that God has set things up. And when you, become, when you begin to try to conform your life to the way that God set these things up, what you find is that there's liberty. It's not, that, it's not bondage. What bondage was, listen, can you fly? Can, anybody in here, can you fly? Anybody got wings? <clears throat> I don't see any halos. Okay, you can't fly. Try to fly. You know what you're going to feel like? You're going to feel like you're in bondage. You're going to feel like somebody's fighting. Man, somebody's just trying to keep me on this earth. Well, duh. The moment that you accept, the moment that you realize you wasn't made to fly. Doofus, that's why God gave you Mutt and Jeff. That's your legs. That's what Mama used to call them anyway. I don't know where she got that, that from. But she, God, I almost said she gave you legs. No, God gave you legs. <laughs> Boy, your words, I, I get my words mixed up. Say some dumb things sometimes. Uh, but anyways, stick with the Bible. Stick with the Bible. God gave you legs. Well, when you submit yourself to that, what you find out is, hey, there's all this order. Hey, God gave me legs to push a gas pedal and a brake pedal. Some of y'all don't know what a brake pedal is. All you know what it is, is a gas pedal. Drive and park, that's all, all you know. Well, God, God, it's just the way that the Lord set things up. Well, the moment that you quit striving against the way that the laws of nature have been set up, what you find is, man, look at all this liberty. 
But if you could believe that, if you had it in your mind, no, I was, I was born to fly, man. This is a stupid illustration, but I think if you can apply it to what goes on in your Christian life, it'll make some sense to you. No, man, I was born to fly. Well, what you're doing is you're living in bondage. You're living in bondage to a fairy tale. You're living in bondage to something that is not real. A Christian looks out across the way, and, or a man, a man looks out across the way and says, well, there's something that that guy has that I'd like to have. I'm going to just go take it. Okay, go take it. You know what's going to happen? A curse. The wages of sin is death. Something is immediately going to start to die. You may not feel it, but something is immediately going to go haywire. Commit adultery. You lie, bear false witness against your neighbor, you covet. I'm just using the Ten Commandments. Uh, use the Lord's name in vain. Well, what you're doing is you're fighting against the way that God says, hey, this is the way that it is. This is the way that, it, that I've set it up. If you'll live within those bounds, what you're going to find is that there's wonderful liberty. No, I'm not going to live that way. Okay, now you're in bondage. Now you've got a ball and chain around your leg and you're fighting against something thinking that, man, the grass is greener on the other side. Whereas if you just stay in that little box, that little box of truth, what you'd find out is, man, this is a wonderful place. Let, let me give you an illustration. I have never met somebody who's been given over to adultery and fornication that was ever happy. But I have met tons of people that were faithful to their spouse and have children and have good ordered homes. And they're some of the happiest people. What the world tells you is the only way you can be happy is by doing whatever you want. And what God says is, no, sir, this is the way I set it up. Adam and Eve, that's the way I set it up. Operate outside of that and you're going to be miserable as the devil. So who's really in bondage? It's not the guy who's looking at God's law and saying, yes, sir. You know what he's doing? You know what the guy who's in God's law and he's, he's trying to conform his life to it? You say, Brother Nathan, nobody can perfectly conform themselves. That's right. That's what the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is for. That's what his death at Calvary is for. That's, that is what grace is for. Grace is not a hall pass. Grace is not a badge for you to flash in God's face and say, oh, but I'm saved. You can't do anything to me now. No, 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 no. You got the wrong understanding. Grace is for when you fail. Grace is for when you come short and you're going to. You do. But it's not something to flaunt in God's face. You see the difference? But while you're taking advantage of that grace, you're also looking at God's law and saying, God's law is right. God's law is good. And what that's doing is that's putting you into a realm of liberty. Fight against it. And what you're doing is you're being overcome by things. Uh -uh. You know what I have the liberty to do? I have the liberty to enjoy the things that I labored for and purchase them. I have that liberty. If I went over to Brother Dylan's house and Brother Dylan had this nice, wonderful weed eater, I'd throw out a name, but these guys know what the best equipment is, so I'll leave that to them when they preach. <laughs> but 
he has this nice, wonderful weed ear in his, at his house, and I go into his shed, and I grab it and take it to my house. You know what I don't have the liberty to do? I don't have the liberty to enjoy it. I pull it out and try to go around, you know, whatever needs to be weed-eated. Lord have mercy, I hate weed-eating. But anyways, especially a trailer with that side and stuff. You weed-eat that stuff and all the vinyl starts chipping away. I guess that's why they made, uh, uh, yeah, whatever, spray. <laughs> Just kill all them weeds and forget about it. Just leave it alone. <laughs> it kind of comforts me that uh, lawn man calls it spray. He don't even call it by the brand name. Kind of encourages my heart. Uh, but you know what? When I pull out the weed eater that doesn't belong to me, I didn't work for it. I didn't labor for it. When I pull that out, you know what I'm doing? I'm pulling it out. Hear the sirens in the background. Here comes my neighbor, worried about whether he knows if it's my... You see, that's the guy that's in bondage. But I did what I wanted. I did what I wanted to do. I took something that wasn't mine, but I'm in bondage now. I get out there with mine that I paid for. Lord have mercy, they're so expensive. I paid for it. Out there, we'd eat. My neighbor walked by. Or if it's a bad neighbor, you snarl at him, whatever. <laughs> you got liberty. You have liberty. Oh, you don't have to listen to those preachers preaching all those rules. They're trying to put you in bondage. Are they really? Hey, if it's God's rules. Now, if it's a preacher telling you you got to wear a white shirt. My boy asked me yesterday, he said, Daddy, do I have to wear a collared shirt tomorrow morning? I said, there's a personal standard. I said, you got to wear a button-up shirt. I said, you do not have to wear a tie. I, that, that's just a little illustration. That has no bearing on what you should wear. I'm just using that as an illustration. Well, see, if, he, if a preacher's standing up saying, well, you've got to wear a white shirt, or you've got to do this, or that's a different story. But if what he's talking about is he's opening the Scripture and preaching to you what God's book says, that's not bondage. That's order. That's order. Fight against it, and what you're going to do is you're going to be the one that's put in bondage. You can't fight. Listen, you can't. You can, but you're not going to successfully fight against the way that God set things up. Amen. Look in First John. Let, let me try and finish this up right quick, and because I'd really like to move on to something next Sunday. We're talking about leadership. Talking about leadership. Look in First John chapter two. When you get saved, God gives you leadership. He he, the Holy Spirit now provides leadership. Look at what he says right here in verse 20. He said, but ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. What's he talking about, atomic physics? No, no, he's not talking about that at all. We'll look back in, down in verse 27. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. The word, the word unction, it means anointing. Look it up in a dictionary, and that's what you'll find. It means anointing. So when he turns around verse 27 and says, but the anointing, he's talking about that unction up in verse 20. He said, but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. Do you know that when you get saved, the day that you trusted Christ as your Savior, now you have somebody living on the inside that will teach you some things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he said, 
He said, nobody taught you this. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he said, nobody taught you this. He said, but ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Nobody had to come in and give you a seminar on those things. He said, that was something that God himself taught you. There are many things. I'm not trying to do away with the need that you have, that all men have, all saved people have, of being part of a church and being taught by a pastor, evangelists, the apostles and prophets. I'm not trying to eliminate that, but there are some things. John chapter 14, 15, and 16, he said, I'll send you the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost. He's the spirit of truth, and he will guide you into all truth. You get that because you're a son. This is not extra. This is what you get the day that you get saved. What you have is you've got leadership. You've got leadership. You've got leadership. John chapter 10. Let me say this and I'll close. John chapter 10. He's talking about uh, people being likened to sheep. And sheep respond to leadership. But he said, my sheep hear my voice. And you know what he turns around and he says shortly after that? He said, they follow me. That's what his sheep do. And listen, so long as you hear his voice and you don't follow him, what you're really doing is you're living against what God's made you to be. You say, Brother Nathan, this is so simple. I know it's so simple. But this is right, I believe, where Christians mess themselves up before we even get to being a servant, before we even get to be apostles, people with power, servants with power, disciples with power. Before you ever get there, you've got to learn to take orders. You've got to learn who God made you to be. God made you to be a son. God made you to be a child of God. And what that equates to, first and foremost, this is the first place you come to in your Christian life, is that, hey, now I am somebody that is to take instructions. You don't realize that, you're, you'll be hung right up there around Mount Sinai going in circles for the rest of your life until you learn that. Amen. All right. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us this morning. God, thank you for the good liberty in here. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us this morning. God, uh, Lord, these things that have been said, pray that you'd imply in the people's hearts. Lord, I, I do pray, God, Lord, for the Sunday morning service. God, pray you'd speak to us and help us, God. Lord, I pray that you'd move among us this morning. God, we need a word from you. God, we need you to move on us, God, and deal with us. Lord, we thank you for already doing so this morning. God, Lord, thank you for the church. Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the word of God. Lord, thank you, God, that we have something that we can pin our hopes to. And God, we just pray that you'd have your will and way among us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, take about five minutes this morning.